Welcome to the Fourth Estate Podcast with Marty Duran, where we examine how the American media are failing the American people. Bad reporting, clickbait headlines, and outright lies will come under scrutiny. Why? Because facts matter. Now, with this edition of the Fourth Estate Podcast, here's your host, Marty Duran. Does language matter at all? When we're speaking in the public discourse, when we're writing, does it matter the words that we use, the terminology that describes? Are we getting across what we want to say? Are we obscuring? Todd Littleton joins me today on the Fourth Estate to talk about some of these things. Todd is a longtime friend. He's a pastor in Tuttle, Oklahoma. I have literally no idea where that is in 10 years of friendship. I've never bothered to look it up on a map, but he and uh, people from his church assure me that it's a actual place in the state of Oklahoma in the United States. Todd pastors at Snow Hill Baptist Church in Tuttle and has been there for uh, some 20 years or maybe longer now, uh, doing a great work. He, uh, he has a podcast called Pathological. It's a, a combination of two words. Uh, pathological and something else. I'm not sure uh, what the other one is. Uh, actually, it's pathos and theological, I believe, is correct. He can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, he also runs the Edge of the Inside blog. You can find all of this at toddlittleton.net. You can find some of his podcast work at roundtablemediagroup.com. Todd joins me today to talk about the use of language, and we start off with... Um, an article that I think was in the Washington Post. We recorded this last week. Uh, it's a critique. It's an article critiquing another article uh, on the use of language. And so we start off there. The the substance of the the critique, uh, nor the original article, are the most important things. We're just talking about the specifics of the use of language, not the specifics necessarily to those articles. Uh, and it made for what I think was a fun and interesting podcast, especially because we took the the subject matter and then applied it to uh, Todd's podcast, Pathological, uh, which deals with pastors and theologians. And so we looked for uh, local church applications to the subject of communication, um, how people use words uh, to make groups look bigger than they are. Uh, how people use words uh, irresponsibly in some cases uh, to communicate things that just aren't true and whether they intend to do it or not, uh, they and we sometimes still do it. So uh, I hope you enjoy today's podcast. It, when you're done, if you don't mind, uh, bop on over to iTunes or Stitcher or uh, another rating place and give the Fourth Estate a rating. And if you have just a few minutes, a review that helps in search. It's not in vain. Uh, so when somebody goes to iTunes and they search for news or uh, you know Christian view or Christian opinion something like that, it gives uh, it helps my podcast uh, be in some of the top search results. So that's always helpful. Um, if you haven't checked out the blog lately, it's martyduran.com. Uh, stop over there when you can. Most of my posts lately have only been the podcast. I've uh, been kind of busy, but there are a few. And any time that you have an opportunity to share and are willing to do that, it is greatly appreciated. Uh, it's never taken for granted. So without further ado, here is today's episode of The Fourth Estate with my special guest, longtime friend, Todd Littleton. Joined 
today by Todd Littleton, pastor in Tuttle, Oklahoma. City council member, podcaster, extraordinaire, blogger for millions of years, and longtime friend. Uh, very insightful guy, and I wanted him uh, on the fourth state today to talk about specifically uh, the use of language. Uh, we're going to use an article. We could have chosen many. We'll use an article to get started. But, uh, Todd, thanks for showing up. Hey, Marty. I uh, appreciate it. I would probably not be uh, into you know, blogging and doing a whole lot of podcasting if it weren't for you. So whoever hates it can blame you, not me, I guess. <laughs> okay. I'll, I'll go with that. I'll go with that. <laughs> If you hate Todd, blame me. Vote for Todd as a vote for Marty. There you go. Oh, man. Um, well, I mean, you know, my podcast is kind of, uh, it kind of has to do with uh, facts and communication, and I work in communications. Uh, but honestly, anybody who's been a pastor for any length of time is uh, somewhat of a communications uh, amateur, if not professional. I mean, we work in the field of uh, talking to people and trying to get information across uh, in what we hope is an accurate way. And in discussions that you and I have had many times, uh, we've expressed concern, frustration, uh, use whichever adjective you like, uh, over the seeming inability of uh, the average um, I'll just say evangelical, since that's kind of our tribe, uh, to kind of filter through information to get at facts. Um, and language, of course, is part of that. So um, we, I sent you an article this morning from The Atlantic, and uh, honest to goodness, the subject matter, uh, I mean, it's about Trump and about Peggy Noonan, who's a speechwriter. Uh, it's not the personalities that I'm as concerned with as uh, kind of how the, the article by Peter Beinert uh, approaches language. Uh, and I know this is, a, uh, this is an area of interest for you. Um, he uses, just for instance, he uses the use of the word seems, S-E-E-M-S, uh, and how it allows wiggle room in an article where you can, you can make an assertion that may not require any fact to substantiate it. But if you use the word seems, then you, you've nuanced it in a way that allows you wiggle room about almost anything that you want to write. Do you see that as a problem? Sure, I, I really do. I, I have to confess that uh, sometimes, in especially uh, online interactions, I will deliberately employ seems uh, in not in an attempt to avoid um, checking out facts or making hard statements, but instead to maybe come off less uh, dogmatic. Right, so I, a little. Yeah, so I found his uh, use of or, or his analysis of how seems worked in Peggy Noonan's writing to be quite intriguing and do think he makes a great point, especially when he is able to demonstrate or illustrate uh, by the lack of substantiation to many of Noonan's claims. Mm -hmm. And so it actually allows for future equivocation. Exactly. Exactly. In this particular uh, story uh, dealing with um, who comprises, what, what are kind of the demographics 
uh, or characteristics of uh, people who are voting for Donald Trump. And, of course, that's been a huge area of debate um, over the last two or three months with every new survey or every new poll seeming to uh, disprove or at least call into doubt the, you know, the most recent one before that. And, um, and I'm with you on the, the use of mitigating and nuance uh, in online discussion because uh, the quickest way, at least in my experience, the quickest way to demonstrate yourself a knucklehead is to continually make assertions that are factually incorrect. And you can mitigate uh, by using words like seems or, you know, I think or if I remember correctly uh, that allow you to present your case. Uh, but allow that someone might correct a mistake that you've made. Uh, Noonan's use of the word seems uh, is quite obviously an attempt to avoid certain facts that would that would cause problems with the hypothesis that she's putting forward. Do you? I thought about this after reading, and then knowing we we're going to have a conversation. There's part of me, and this is maybe being a bit hypercritical, but. There's part of me that considers this lazy. Mm-hmm. That if you're going to make claims and then use seams so that you avoid having to supply any supportive uh, facts, as mm-hmm. you as you refer to them, um, it, it really just seems like who's got the time? I don't have the time. Okay, I'm just going to go with it. And yeah. I, and I and and I find the danger, at least in this particular media, that it's already prone to propagandish, um, manipulative uh, discourse. It makes this kind of egregious. Mm-hmm. So, what do you? I mean, you you really well, spend I'm looking the, at. Uh her use of um, uh, he goes on to talk about her use of public furor so uh, there's a particular instance where she says uh, writing I think she was in the Wall Street Journal uh, the result has been widespread public furor over in the you know crime cultural dissimulation fears of terrorism etc and the facts of the uh, instance on the ground were that crime is not uh, substantially higher in the area she was writing about, that cultural issues weren't as difficult uh, as she was making it to be, and the reality of terrorism, uh, though there is terrorism, uh, certainly wasn't related to refugees as she was seeming to imply. Uh, and so the, she uses people's fear or people's concerns as a basis for establishing a fact So instead of establishing the fact, she uses the public concern as the establishment of the fact. Uh, And of course, that I mean, that's no different than saying um, there's a there's a a limited but very strong concern that men never uh, have walked on the moon. And so since men have never walked on the moon, it's the same kind of thing. You're taking uh, a person's concern or a group of people's concerns and using the concerns, which may not be accurate or based in reality, as to establish your argument that you then move on to make, and I think that's really, really weak. Oh, yeah, and I think that I think that the uh, um, added danger is that you end up having uh, 
meaningless discourse because whatever it is that she feels necessary, or anyone who might do this, feels necessary to assert, if you peel back the layer and it's empty in the middle, then all you're really doing is taking the concern and using it to whip people into a frenzy. And um, and, and, and when you can get enough uh, likes, uh, retweets, um, shares, that sort of thing, then it, the truth really doesn't matter because your aim was to 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 play to that concern as though you've got a really core issue you're you're worried about. Yeah. And there was a yeah, go ahead. No, I, and I was just going to say the, the the problem with that is it's so common that sometimes it's not even recognizable. Mm-hmm. People people rarely because we right now see are so polarized and so emotively driven that we don't pause long enough to say what really is she trying to get at? Because that, to me, after I read the article, is like, okay, so what's what's really her core? Uh, what what's the substance of her argument? And yeah, if if she's not trying to get at the truth, what is she trying to get exactly, at? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, there was a a, a similar story, um, not not about noon, and this was uh, more general. Uh, several months ago, maybe six months ago, um, I, I can't remember. Maybe this was in the Atlantic, and it it was uh, talking about the use of the word many in writing. So the way that you uh, establish dominance for your proposition is not to provide facts, but to use the word many. Many people believe many times, many this, many that. And just by using that word, inserting it into a sentence or inserting it into a paragraph or inserting it into an assertion, then you've automatically multiplied the impact of the statement and brought to people's minds that the peop- that the ones uh, pro- proposing this idea, whatever it might be, are more numerous than just the writer. Uh, and I've caught myself numerous times, many times, I'll just use the word, many times I've caught myself uh, in writing and knowing a particular fact, and I'll just make up something that, you know, that the sun is hot. Uh, knowing a particular fact, I'd studied it, I'd read it, but as I was writing, whether you know on my blog or whatnot, uh, I would use a word like many or most that I recognized immediately was not able to be substantiated by what I was going to pre- pre- present. And by using many or most, I, was, I would have been, I didn't do it uh, when I could catch myself, but I would have been overplaying my hand and implying that, though I believed the sun was hot, that because many people believed the sun was hot, therefore the sun is hot. And, uh, and of course, the sun's not hot because I believe it's hot, and the sun's not hot because many people believe it's hot. It's hot because it's a fact of physical science. And I think we run into, and again, going to the use of language, uh, we run into this over and over and over uh, in online content where... Uh, statements are made. I saw just the other night on Twitter uh, a former George, state of Georgia uh, rep- U.S. representative. So this is not like a House state, rep- you know, a House representative in the state uh, that represents seventy-eight people in you know East Georgia or something. This is a guy who's in Washington, has been in Washington D.C., and he tweeted uh, something to the effect of, you know, Hillary Clinton wants to open all the borders to all the refugees, and you know, six hundred and something thousand refugees she wants to let in. 
Well, just ask the people in San Bernardino how that worked out. Well, here's a guy who was in Congress for a minimum of, minimum of two years. <laughs> you know, unless he quit in the middle of his first term, he was in there for at least two years and doesn't know the difference between an immigrant, a refugee, an asylum seeker, and a U.S. citizen, which is what one of the, the killers in San Bernardino was. And uh, this laziness, and as you call it, or you know, apathy, or lack of concern, or intentional uh, muddying of language just to prove a point is uh, is getting, in my view, pretty dangerous. Oh, I, yeah, I couldn't help um, since we're kind of going to, you know, treat this as a bit of a crossover podcast. Immediately, my mind races to our ecclesial experiences with many. And I don't, I, you know, I don't know the math, but I'm pretty sure that combined, uh, our years in uh, church leadership exceed 50. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, sadly, that tells people how old we are. But um, <laughs> I've only I, been in ministry 10 years. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and and and, he, and so, in this vein, how many times do you recall being approached by well, well, pastor? Many people are saying. Mm-hmm. Many people feel this way, and so you know, uh, my my mentor used to talk about the several family and the many family, and that they're the most ubiquitous family in church life. Well, if Noonan's article gives us anything, we learn that that's beyond ecclesial. In other mm-hmm. words, it is part of public discourse that we are all a bit lazy, and rather than be more accurate in making an argument or appeal or even describing a thing, we all become cousins in the mini family. And that um, we really um, are obscuring better communication. Uh, We're we're falling prey to very weak arguments. Uh, We're being uh, led in uh, such ways that it, it almost makes really good... Uh, intentions to get at the facts almost impossible. Um, wh- one of the things uh, about the, the uh, ever presence, if you will, or or the all too frequent use of many, um, leads us to the place where we really having uh, well, it just impairs communication. We we can't make good arguments. We can't even understand good arguments because. Uh, we are we are constantly being led around by this particular sort of discourse. So, if we're wanting to draw some really good conclusions based on facts, uh, even even in this election cycle that that were you know that prompted this sort of thing, w- what we really are are risking is being led by arguments made in the media or by our friends or whoever we've given authority over, kind of our opinions. Um, to draw conclusions that can't be substantiated. Right. And and that's really, really uh, dangerous, I think, don't you? Oh, absolutely. And that's, uh, I mean, just to play on the, the theme that you were singing a moment ago, uh, in church it's the same way because when when the, the person representing the, the many family or the person representing the several family uh, comes to the pastor and the pastor then believes that report, um, then it affects the way the pastor thinks about church planning, thinks about his his support, um, the 
how how the congregation is viewed on Sunday morning. Where where are these people who don't like me? Where are these people that think I'm doing a bad job? Uh, and and so the the implication of that bad information is exactly the same then as we face uh, in the, the secular world, the political world. Uh, you know, just to go in push in a little farther. We were joking early on. This won't. This may not be on the podcast. We were joking early on about a, a vote for Todd is a vote for Marty, and a vote for Marty is a vote for Todd. That whole nonsense that your vote, you know, counts for somebody else because uh, it's assumed by the person you're in conversation with or your online conversant that uh, you are automatically uh, taking a vote from their candidate when all of the facts, uh, if you go back to the election where Nader was involved, uh, interestingly, the, the two most prominent ones that come to people's minds are uh, 1980 when Nader was in the, the race and Gore lost Florida uh, by the skin of the Supreme Court's you know, teeth. And, uh, and then the other one would have been Ross Perot in Clinton uh, and Bush. And interestingly enough, uh, the American Spectator, which is a conservative uh, publication, debunked about, uh, about last year, I think, the, uh, the Perot and Bush scenario saying that Perot took more voters from Clinton than he did Bush. And he also brought voters into the race that otherwise would not have voted. So it, there's never a one-to-one correlation. And then the Daily Coast did the same thing with the um, Nader and Gore, demonstrating that in Florida, which was the pivotal state, of course, that more liberals voted for Bush than voted for the other two candidates. Probably had something to do with, you know, I don't know. But anyway, I thought it was interesting that the conservative magazine debunked Bush, Perot, and the liberal magazine debunked. Uh, Gore and Nader, but when you try to uh, deal with this in conversation, it's like there's no moving forward because these, uh, in the case of who you're voting for, the binary, in the case of uh, the scenario from 92 and from 80, um, the, was it 92? Oh, 92 and 2000. What is... Um, we're, we're dealing with uh, uh, we're dealing with a time when communication is of primary importance. So you want to say from the pulpit, or you want to say from the state house, or from the journalistic institute. Uh, when communication is of primary importance, and it seems that we who are in the the listenership, whether it's the congregation at church or uh, those listening to a political speech or those reading, are are not as uh, aggressively um, concerned with the nuance. We're not as aggressively concerned with the meaning of the language uh, and what it all represents. And uh, I, I think it, at least potentially, could pave the way for some very serious uh, distortion, propaganda, whatever you want to say, uh, in the future if we're not going to be willing to take seriously the use of language. Oh, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. And you know, uh, it's not terribly complicated. Uh, for instance, uh, the same method to get through this um, gobbledygook, which is really what it boils down to. That's that's a term I learned in freshman English uh, in college. Uh, it, to get through it is is really the same. Let's find out how many. Uh, so whether it's in church work, which 
I tend to be prone, uh, obviously, to um, experience this uh, the way that many is used. I just ask, so who are the many? And if I don't get really an answer, again, it becomes sort of veiled or opaque, then my experience uh, it tells me that I'm looking at the many. Mm-hmm. And, and so in, in a lot of ways, if you can't uh, ver- verify, say in this illustration, uh, Noonan's uh, facts, then really what you are, are reading, you're reading the many. You're reading the one who's making the assertion, and and she becomes the many. Mm-hmm. And in in that vein, then um, you you can I you, it doesn't mean you completely dismiss maybe uh, what you think she might be aiming at, but you certainly don't put a lot of stock in her as a resource without going further and investigating much deeper. Yeah. And for your path theological audience, I would say uh, the pastors who are listening to your podcast, uh, it's perfectly appropriate if somebody comes to you and, and speaks of the many um, to either ask, who are the many? Because I don't feel comfortable. I don't feel it's right for me to talk about other people's opinions without them being here. And if the person declines to name the many, then one way to go ahead and find out what the issue is is to just mitigate the whole thing by saying, well, rather than talking about what these other people are concerned about, why don't let's just have a conversation, you share your concerns, and then if at some point they decide to come to me, then, you know, I'll, I'll talk to them as well. And that way you've kind of sort of let them off the hook uh, for being guilty for lying, and at the same time, you actually get to hear their concerns, maybe more open than they would have been if they were hiding behind the veil. Um, I, I don't know how we how we can transfer that to, to the wider society when you've got all these competing voices and and uh, multitude of you know, commentary and all of that kind of thing. It's not like you know we can stand up to the White House press secretary and say, "Hey, by the way, you know you're only speaking for yourself right now because the president says something different 30 minutes ago." Um, but but I think the the onus is going to be on as long as we have the internet and as long as we have the ability to search the world's knowledge with a click, then the onus is going to remain on the consumer of information and track down the facts as best they can. Yeah, I think you're right in that, in that regard. I, I, I know this may be a tangent, but, but I think it's worth at least considering that's this, you know, one of the ways you could in public discourse, uh, try to get at what you can't do um, as you would say in, an, in a church setting in a, in a pastoral setting that you described really well what, what you could do is m- when I read that and was thinking about what we might talk about and, and, and really what, what we were going to do with the language Noonan, Noonan presents a context so here's the fascinating thing uh, again, I, I know we don't care to explore completely, you know, the, necessarily the subject content, but, but she's almost defending a particular demographic, which, mm-hmm. in my estimation, actually doesn't represent her demographic. That's exactly right. So <laughs> it, it seems to be a, a contradictory move, because for her to take up for the particular demographic that she writes about actually undercuts her standing in society and wider culture, because if that particular group had their way, she wouldn't be writing. 
Mm-hmm. So I think at that particular point, when we encounter that, we could actually take a step back and go, well, let me find out what this particular person's commitments might be. Or at the very least, that demographic, the way she's portraying them. Correct. If, if that demographic is actually as she says they are. Correct. Then you know she's the hoity-toity. She's part of the problem. She's not part of the solution. Correct. Yeah, that's a good. Point. Yeah. Well, dude, on my end, I think dinner is ready. All right. Well, dinner's always good, and uh, having a conversation with me doesn't uh, rise to the level of missing dinner. But we ought to we ought to do this again. I think this is uh, this makes for an interesting. Um, crossover you I do next too. Time, uh, I'll be Willie Nelson and you can be Shania Twain. Uh, there you go. And, All right. um, <laughs> that sounds like a plan. All right. Thanks. Good to talk to you, man. Bye bye. Bye bye.